Good morning to the 4th of July weekend faithful. My name is Dennis Gardner. I serve as the operations director here at Terra Nova Troy. Uh, we have some new faces on the platform. You've probably noticed for some of you some new faces. One of the benefits of Terra Nova Church being a family of three churches is that we support each other. And as many of you also know, Pastor Rob is on a sabbatical, Pastor Tori is on vacation. And so the Terra Nova in North Adams, Massachusetts has graciously decided to come here and bring their entire church to serve us this morning. So they didn't just bring a worship team and a speaking pastor, they brought members of their congregation. I see you all. So um, things will be a little different for us in Troy today, but it doesn't matter. We serve the same God, amen? And, 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 and no matter which Terra Nova branch you're at, our goal is that Christ would be revealed. Uh, so I would like to introduce Pastor Paul Gordon, who's mostly going to introduce himself when he comes up to speak. Um, the worship leader, Elizabeth Hill, is here with her husband, one of the members of the Avid Brothers. And um, <laughs> sorry, Austin. And they're going to be leading us in worship today. So I'm going to hand it over to them. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. How cool is it that the church I get to worship in most Sundays has uh, Seth Avitt playing guitar and the real Liz Hill <laughs> singing. Uh, for many of you, I'm a new face. So my name is Paul Gordon. Uh, I have the pleasure of serving as a pastor at Terra Nova Church in North Adams and also helping to serve the family of churches in Terra Nova Church here, Terra Nova Church in Saratoga, in North Adams as uh, the executive pastor or executive director of that network. Before we get in uh, to our time in the Word today, let me just take a minute here to introduce ourselves uh, and our connection to this church because it's a joy for myself and my family to be here. Uh, and to be back here in this church, we have not been at a Sunday gathering in this space, so it's been a while since we've been here, but we started attending Terra Nova Church in Troy, New York in 2006, and so that goes back several years, and this church was critical uh, for my wife and I in the early years of our marriage, and it was pivotal as two normal people, maybe, I think we're still normal, I hope we're still normal, uh, entered into ministry, but God has been faithful and good through all of those years, and for 16 plus years, this church family has been our family, whether it's here or Saratoga or in North Adams, and we've been in North Adams for about six years, undertaking the work of planting a new church there. Actually, it's been, has it been six years? Yeah, six years, that's right. I can think about that for a minute, uh, and later on this morning, I'll give a, a little bit of a brief update. Uh, but that's a little bit of who I am, and it is a joy for not only me, for my family, but I think for our church to be here with you uh, as well. All right, so Tori told me, not only was I going to have a ginormous stand to preach from, this is, does he usually use, this is huge. Um, Tori told me I had about 90 minutes to, <laughs> all right, some people like that, other people. Dennis is in the back already shaking his head and regretting the fact that I'm here. Um, 
So we are going to kick off, I'm going to help kick off with you something that we in Terra North Adams have done for several summers now, and that is spending the summer going through the Psalms. So not only will I open up and we're going to work through a Psalm in a little bit, Tori asked if I'd give an intro to uh, the Psalms as well. So the Psalms, if you were to take your Bible and just open it up flat so that it's in the middle, uh, you'd roughly find yourself probably in the book of Psalms. There's 150 chapters. What that is, is 150 poems, or poetic prayers, or hymns, or songs. This is poetry that dates back thousands of years. But yet somehow, the words, the sentiments, the emotions that find themselves embedded in the poetry of the Psalms still resonate with us today, thousands of years later. And I think part of the reason that is, is because in the poetry of the Psalms or the prayers or the songs that are there, I think we find the full scope of the human experience, right? There's 150 of them. And if you were to spend your time in all of them, you would find joy, loss. You'd find death. You'd find birth. You'd find doubt. You'd find hope. You'd find faith. You'd find work. You'd find rest. You'd find worry. Whatever you want to find you're probably going to find expressed in the human journey somewhere in the Psalms. But it's not just that. Because while we find the fullness of humanity there, I think we also find the fullness of who God is there with it in the Psalms. You're going to hear his booming voice. You're going to feel his unnerving silence at some time. You're going to read about his mercy, his justice, his love, his wrath, his past provision, and his future promises. You're going to read about the characteristics of who God is, all of who he is you'll find in the Psalms as well. So why I think part of the reason the Psalms still speak to us today is because they hold the confluence of the real us and the real God. So... Um, I think this is how you're going to work through it. I'm assuming that you're going to do it in a similar way that we do it in North Adams. And that is any given Sunday through the summer, uh, somebody will be up here and you're going to work through a particular psalm or maybe part of a psalm. So I just want to give you one caution and one encouragement to you as a church as you take this journey this summer. All right, first thing, the caution as you go through the book of Psalms. One, don't take everything that you're about to read so literally. Okay? It's poetry. Right? Rather than take the stuff in there that's literally, rather try to pursue what the poet is trying to communicate through the imagery. Take, for example, God is my rock. <laughs> Doesn't mean that he's a stone that you should put in your egg carton rock collection. All right? So it's poetry. Don't take it so literally. Any, anything more than you would take the modern-day poet Rumi, who says, my heart desires a kiss from you, he's not asking you to perform heart surgery, take out his heart, and give him a peck on the aortic valve. Right? We get that he's trying to communicate something else. Same thing with the poetry, over the Psalms and the poems there. Slow down, literal understandings. And with that caution, let me have that open a door for you as an invitation. Be creative. Think differently. Think outside of the box. Take a little bit of creative license to allow your mind and your heart to roam a bit. Give yourself the freedom to see, interact, hear from God differently than you might be used to. 
or dare I say, maybe even differently than the person next to you. Now, I want to say that a little carefully, but poetry can resonate with different people in different ways at the same time or in different times. Take, for example, God is my rock. Right? That's Psalm 62. If you aren't familiar, that that's a piece of a psalm. But God is a rock can mean for somebody here today that he is security for you in a, in a time of trouble. But it also might mean that he's a foundation in a time of doubt. Or it also might mean to you that he's a constant in a time of ever-changing circumstances. They're related things, I'll grant you that. But are you with me and like experience these things maybe with some nuance and some creativity as to how these things might land with you? I think it's okay with this genre of scripture to think outside of the box a little bit. So, from North Adams to Troy, as you go through the Psalms this summer, don't take everything so literally. Have a little creative license. And if anything shakes out, Rob, Tori, Nate, Nat, and Jason, they're here for that. I'll be back in Massachusetts. <laughs> All right. Corey has been waiting patiently in the pack. We're going to actually get into a psalm. We're going to look at Psalm 127. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and take that out. If you have a glowing rectangle, you want to turn that on, that's fine. It'll be on the screen. But if you want a Bible, raise your hand we can give you a Bible. These are for you to keep or borrow for the day, whatever you'd like. So go ahead and put your hand up and somebody can bring you a Bible. We'll be looking at Psalm 127. It's only five verses. All right. Psalm 127. I'll read through the whole thing. Many of you may be familiar with the Psalm. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb of a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. That'll be the psalm for our day. Which maybe that psalm, that poem, might feel a little disjointed at first reading. Like the first part is about work, and then it pivots in verse 3 to a whole other thing, children and parenting. But I think we can actually weave a consistent thread through this. I think like most pieces of art and poetry and songs, the artist is trying to communicate something through the whole thing. And so I think we can find that in here today. So I want us to journey through this psalm through three words, which are on the screen. Principle, pattern, and purpose. I'll bounce around with those things as we go, but those will be the three words that give structure to our time in Psalm 127. All right, we'll start with principle. I think the there's an on-the-nose, somewhat obvious principle right out of the gate in this psalm. And that is, without the Lord's blessing, all of life, whether it's work and labor or parenting, it's ultimately worthless. Worthless. Without God's blessing, without his involvement, all of life is ultimately 
worthless. If you labor to build things the Lord doesn't care to have built, it won't last. It's pointless. It's vain, is what the, the psalmist is telling us. If you seek to protect, to safeguard stuff that the Lord doesn't care to protect, it'll be lost. It'll be vain to do that work. And that principle, on the surface, is preached to us so often day in and day out by looking at landfills, archaeological sites, or ruins. Some stuff that we spend our lives building and acquiring is vain and pointless, and God is not in it. So the author of this Psalm 127 is a person, I don't know if your Bible that you're looking at has it there for you. The author of this Psalm is a guy named Solomon, which may be familiar with you, for you, because Solomon is known for, like, so if you're from North Adams, you know that I like interaction, so feel free to speak back. Solomon is known for wisdom, perfect, yeah, yeah, We're gonna, that's what I was looking for, so Solomon is known for wisdom, so across the pages of the Bible, you're going to have different, Abraham's known for faith, Ruth is known for love. David is known for writing the Psalms. Moses is known for his leadership. Mary is known for her humility and willingness to be used by the Lord. Solomon's known for his wisdom. Another reason you may have heard of the name Solomon is because he built the temple. I love it. You guys are giving, all right, we're already in this. Keep going because I'm going to be asking you guys some questions today. Solomon is the one who led the building of the great temple in Jerusalem round about the year 1000. Uh, before the birth of Christ. Now, Solomon's father was David, King David, the one who wrote most of the Psalms. David wanted to build the temple, but the Lord didn't have it for him. It wasn't in the cards. It wasn't ordained for David's life to build the temple. So had David tried to do that, it would have been in vain. Solomon knows firsthand that unless the Lord is building the house, he would be laboring in vain as well. He saw that play out with his, with his father. So this psalm feels a little bit different than a lot of the other psalms you might look at this summer. And part of the reason is because I think Solomon is the author. It kind of has a proverbial tone to the whole thing. Right? It sounds like Proverbs. Solomon wrote the majority of the book of Proverbs. And that's kind of the, the, the sound of this, of this psalm, which, again, that on-the-nose idea is to work or live outside of God's will is pointless, utterly meaningless, vain. Solomon writes a lot about that. The book of Ecclesiastes would be another place where Solomon does that. But this idea, to live or to work outside of the will of God, is ultimately vain, worthless for you, invites us into, this psalm invites us into the opposite of that or the other side of that coin, and that is that there is actually work for us that is not meaningless. Right? It's not just that it's vain to work apart from the Lord. It's that it's purposeful or meaningful to work with and for the Lord. Solomon's work of building the temple was meaningful because the Lord had it for him, desired it for him to do. It was worth him giving his life to see the temple built. You with me on that? So the question for us, if it's temple building and city guarding for King Solomon in Jerusalem, what is this work for us today? What is it that God is building that we should join in the work of? 
what is it that God is working, watching over, that we should also join in on? All right, I'm going to ask you another question. Feel free to respond. Could, we're going to test your theology here about the sovereignty of God. Could, or the all-powerfulness of God, could God have snapped his fingers and built a temple in the city of Jerusalem? Oh, somebody, that was a young voice. I love it. Yes. Could the all-powerful God who never slumbers sufficiently keep guard over the city of Jerusalem? Yeah. But he chooses to do that work through Solomon and the Jewish people. God is gifting them purpose, meaningfulness. Yes, in his greatness, he give us, gives us life, but catch that in his goodness, he gives us life with meaning and purpose. So the greater principle of this psalm is that God works through his people to accomplish his plans. And I know Tori's loves to give you guys the main idea of a sermon. If I was to give it to you, that would be it. Right? God works through his people to accomplish his plans. All across the pages of this Bible, and even today. He works through his people to accomplish his plans. I'm going to say that a lot this morning. Take, for example, you just finished a sermon series called One Another's. And I don't know all of the one another's that you work through. Um, I, I'm, I'm giving a guess some, like forgive one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, love one another. You guys co covered some of those, right? Could God do any of that on his own? Could he forgive you? Could he love you? Could he encourage you? Could he exhort you? Could he comfort you of his own accord? Yes. But he chooses to do that work through people. So that when you encourage me, I hear, I feel as though God is encouraging me. When you forgive me, I feel as though I can, I can understand with more depth the reality that God forgives me. God works through his people to accomplish his plans, whether that's building a temple or living out the one another's. So in some sense, this psalm is a call for us to join in that work, for us to find, to enjoy, to value, to find purpose. And I want to be careful here at this point, too, and just to say whatever that career for you might be, whatever your job might be, whether it's teaching, whether it's engineering, whether it's art, whether it's nursing, whether it's parenting, whatever that is, the journey here for us is to connect that to the redemptive purposes of God and to find purpose and how your work and the people that you do life with and work with are connected to all of that. When we find that, how our work, how our lives, how we spend our days connects with this greater story is where we'll find purpose, not meaningless toil or aimless life. I'm gonna build that out just a little bit more. But before I do, I do think there's another piece here in this psalm that I wanna put a finger on quickly before we keep moving forward, because it's not just the wisdom that life apart from God is pointless, but God chooses to do his plans through his people, so get on board with that to find purpose. It's not just that. Solomon connects these ideas to our tendency to overwork, 
and to our worry, to our anxiousness, and our stress. Because life outside of God's will is not just about meaninglessness. It also might be the root of your anxiousness and your worry and your unrest. See, here's what Solomon knew in building the temple. He knew the Lord had it for him, so then he knew his workers and him could take a day off. Could unplug, get some rest, because the Lord was going to see the building of that temple through. He had the plans for it. Whether it took 79 days or two years, there was surety of its success because they were doing the work of the sovereign God. So it's an invitation to work hard and rest and relax and not eat the bread of anxious toil. This is maybe a little bit disconnected from the sermon. Probably worthy of its own sermon completely, but I want to say it. The rest you're looking for is not found in the ceasing of work. The rest you're looking for is to find work that's nested within the sovereignty of God. Now that is a large statement I get. It's philosophical. But if I try to say that maybe another way, if you don't trust in the God who is sovereign over you, all of your circumstances and all of that you do, you will be constantly searching for peace. But rest, security, sleep is a gift given you when you surrender to the sovereignty of God and his will for your life. Otherwise, whatever you're going to be building, giving your life towards, won't last. It's not going to have any lasting meaning or whatever you seek to guard will be lost. Go read the book of Ecclesiastes to capture Solomon's unpacking of all of that. The principle of this psalm, let me get back into the psalm, sorry. But the principle of this psalm, God works through his people to accomplish his plans, and in that we find purpose for our work and peace in our lives. All right, so I'm, uh, I'm a pastor, but I'm also a church planter. And so this psalm, if you spend any time in church planting circles, this psalm attracts church planters and pastors like a skeeter to a bug zapper. That's the scary county that just came out of it. So, yeah, so North Adams is here, and my Terranova Troy family's here, and my scary county family's here. It's like the confluence of all my families are here today. But anyway, sorry. So, yeah, but this psalm naturally attracts church planters and pastors to it. Because they they read this and they think, unless the Lord is building and planting the church in North Adams, then we're laboring in vain. Or the pastors even here will feel this. Unless the Lord is watching over this church family in Troy, the pastors can stay alert, they can can shepherd, they can protect the flock, but all that will be in vain if if the Lord's not doing that. So this psalm has a way of attracting pastors and church planters to it. But in doing that, what I want us to draw out of that is that we actually made a fairly creative leap in doing that. Can we legitimately correlate Solomon's building of the temple 3,000 years ago, that place where God would dwell with his people, his house, can we correlate that to the New Testament church? Because that's the leap we're making when we adopt this for planting, pastoring churches? And my answer to that is yes, I think we can 
because of a pattern that we see in the whole of Scripture. So let's go on a little Sunday drive and journey with me through the story writ large of the Bible. All All the way back on the left-hand side of the book of Genesis, God and his people dwelt together perfectly in the Garden of Eden. He walked with them. They walked with him. Yet quickly in that story, a place, the presence of God and his people, the physical place, the physical relational presence is severed by sin and idolatry. Adam and Eve were cast out, and all of a sudden, like, the story at that point is now marked by distance between God and his people. But thank goodness the story doesn't end at Genesis 3 and continues on, because ever since then, this heartbeat of God's to desire to be with, to dwell with his people remains. And so from that point forward in the story all the way to the book of Revelation, he's continuing to take one step closer in pursuing his people. So just walk with me through this, right? So not too much later into Genesis, he rescues them out of slavery into Egypt. And then as they're traveling to the promised land, he instructs them to build a tabernacle, which is a temporary tent. It was a place for him to commune with them as they traveled. His presence was a little bit closer. It was a little more consistent. And then they get to the promised land, and there's Jerusalem, and then they replace the nomadic tabernacle with the more permanent temple. That's what Solomon is building here in this psalm, and that is a place in the Holy of Holies where God would take up residence there to communicate, to commune with his people. It was a little bit more permanent. It was a little bit more glorious, but it was another step and his pursuit, and his plan of dwelling with his people. But that temple that Solomon built didn't last. It didn't stand forever. It didn't remain. So if you keep going through the the story, we get to the New Testament in the person of Christ, where we are told he tabernacles with us. He takes on flesh. He becomes one of us. He walks with us, talks with us. He's a little more tangible, a little bit more approachable, a little bit more relatable. But Christ didn't stay. He ascended. And we find ourselves at this point in the story. So if we're tracking this thread through the story writ large, we should be asking the question, then where does God today dwell with his people? Because his heart to do that has not changed. But yet he's continuing to take a step closer and closer to us. The, The Apostle Paul, the writer of the majority of the New Testament, answers this question in spades. First Corinthians, he would say, do you know... Do you not know that you, and he's speaking to the church in Corinth, the believer in Christ, the follower of Christ in the city of Corinth, do you not know that you are a temple of God and his spirit dwells in you? Wow, well, we just made a huge leap in the closeness of the presence of God. There's this marvelous mystery that upon confession of faith in and submission of your life to the lordship of Jesus, the spirit of God is given to us. It is poured into us, takes up residence within us. That's mind-blowing in so many ways. But the New Testament teaches the place for God to dwell with his people today at this point in the story is where the spirit dwells within us. But it's not just individuals, because Paul would speak this truth all over the New Testament. Ephesians 2 is is another chapter where he'll unpack this more. But here's Paul Gordon version of this stuff. Like, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but citizens. You're no longer enemies of God, 
but sons and daughters of God. You were far from him, separated from him, but you've been brought near with the citizens, with the saints, and the members of the household of God. And then Paul would say, being joined, built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So you have to put these two things together, and yes, the Holy Spirit is within the believer, but he's also then among the collective of believers. All right, are you tracking with me on this? This is kind of important to where I want to go towards the end of this. But the place for God to dwell with us is within us and among us in the church. Now, the story continues on. That's our point in the story. By the time you would get to Revelation all the way towards the end, the Apostle John would promise us or pen the promise of Revelation 21. This is, I, I, I so long for this day. Revelation 21, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, take notice, look, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Come, Lord Jesus, I want that. That's the ultimate place we're going to get to. But what I want you to capture here is this story writ large. Because where we'll get to is just the return to what we had in the Garden of Eden. The fullness of presence with God. That was lost. And then we had the tabernacle where God made a step closer. Then we had the temple. And then we had the person of Jesus Christ. And then he takes up residence within us. And we are the church. And then we're going to be back to a day when there's actually no more separation at all. This is the story writ large of place for God to be with his people. So that pattern informs it's not a leap for church planters and pastors to read Psalm 127, 1 and 2, and say, okay, well, if Solomon's building the temple, we can look at that as the building of the church because that's the place where God dwells with his people. That was, that was really all I wanted to get to out of all that. <laughs> Maybe. But let me also remind us that that story writ large I really believe is also a story writ small. Here's what I mean by that. That this is not just a storyline for God and all his people. This is also a storyline for God and you. Please don't get lost in the sea of humanity when we talk about the meta-narrative of scripture. God sees you. God knows you. God desires to dwell with you, to be your God, to walk with you, to talk with you. And yes, the story arc is the same. Yes, your sin, your idolatry creates separation between you and God. But like God pursues all of his people, I firmly believe he pursues each and every one of us. And he's continuing to take a step closer and closer to you as well. And I believe he stands right before you in the person of Jesus Christ. Wanting you to invite him in. And when you do that, all distance between you and God is gone. This isn't just about a story for a place to God to dwell. This is also a story about a place for you to belong. And in the person of Jesus Christ and his church. Welcome home.
think that's a brief, maybe not so brief, but important detour for us to take as we look at Psalm 127. Because if pastors and church planters flock to verses 1 and 2, parents flock to verse 3. Children are a blessing. They're a heritage. Fill your quiver with them. Now, I'm not dismissing any of that. Children, most days, are a blessing. However, if I want to encourage you to think a little creatively with the Psalms, allow the space for that here with me today. If Psalm 1 and 2 aren't just written for contractors and security guards, could it be possible that Psalm 127 verses 3 through 5 is more than just about physical children? God works through his people to accomplish his plans of establishing a place for him to dwell with his people. And for Solomon, that was temple building brick by brick. For us in the church, we don't make it up of bricks, we make it up of people. The, the story writ large of place isn't the only theme that originates, the only storyline that originates in the garden and pulls its way through the whole of the scriptures, our purpose of why we exist also does. Because in the garden we're told to, what's one of the commands God gives Adam and Eve in the garden? Be fruitful and multiply. Make more of your kind, reproduce your kind, make more image bearers of God. And certainly, I won't ask you to answer this again, but certainly God could have just done that work himself. He could have just breathed into more dust or carved out more ribs and made more people. But again, right out of the gate, he invites us into taking part in the work that he's doing. And for the sake of time, I, can't, I don't want to have to necessarily weave this all the way through the scripture, so I'm just going to ask you to trust me for a minute and jump ahead with me to the end of Matthew when Jesus in the Great Com Commission says... Thank you. Love it. Go and make disciples. Can I propose that maybe this is a redeemed, restored, reapplied commission that God gave his people from the garden to be fruitful and multiply? Go and make disciples. Reproduce the kind make more image bearers of God, make more image bearers of Christ? I don't think I'm making too many leaps here. Put this together with the psalm. Making more believers in Christ is our job of adding bricks to the temple. So maybe this thing about parenting and children isn't just about making babies and having big families with quivers full of arrows called children. I'm sure it's sure of that too, but I think looking at the psalm this way 
that maybe it's not just about having children, but having spiritual children and making disciples there is also a real blessing. And maybe something we should be concerning ourselves and filling our quivers with. Not just physical kids, spiritual children. Notice the importance of the arrow in the psalm too. Is the blessing just that the quiver is full? I don't think so. The reality is, when an arrow flies, it realizes its purpose. When it hits a target, it accomplishes what it was made for. And remember, back at this time in the writing of the psalm, the warrior probably would have made his own arrows, not gone to Dix and bought them. So, all right, like, so he's making his arrows, but the point isn't for the war. The best warrior wasn't the warrior who had the most arrows in his quiver. It was the warrior who sent them out the best and actually hit his target the most efficiently. An archer doesn't win a tournament by showing up with an arrow full of quivers. A hunter doesn't have a meal by sitting in his tree stand and never shooting an arrow. My father taught me that one. (laughs) Arrows find their purpose when they're released from the archer. It's a tool that allows the warrior to reach further than he ever could have reached on his own. So let me flesh this out through our church. Two church stories. And for Tori, if you're watching, this is your church planting update. Tara Troy, for those of you who call this church your home. Our church in North Adams is your daughter. We are your children. You've given money. Lots of it. We, not just Nicole and I, our church are the missionaries that this church has supported with the most money over the last five years. Thank you for that. We're your We're a teenage child because we're not done asking for it yet. (laughs) You've given people. The people that, 2015, seven and a half years ago, started a Bible study, were from here. They were members of this church. They were discipled here. They were poured into here but catch the fact that they weren't kept here. They were launched from here, Nicole and I included. Our church was born out of this church. And had you not done that, had you kept us as an arrow in the quiver, here's some of the things that would have gone missed. Annie wouldn't have had a church to be baptized in last year. Gracie, Kai, Judah, Vesta, Madeline, Freya, Zeke, I know, and other little kids running around our church. They wouldn't have our church home to disciple them in the Lord as they grow up. Justin and Jesse may not have a place to explore or rekindle their faith. The real Liz Hill may not have a place to use her gifts and serve a church. Gabe may not have a church where he's being trained as an elder and a pastor. I could keep going, 
there's a tension here. I don't want to tokenize our story and the people of our church, but I do want you to feel and I do want you to hear that had you not launched us as arrows, those things may not have happened for the kingdom. But you did send us so that every man, woman, and child in the northern Berkshires could have a repeated opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you would not be able to do that from here. But you launched an arrow that's attempting to do that work. And by God's grace, we're that arrow. Arrows aren't meant to be collected, they're meant to be shot. So let me say this another way to a church family that I love. Yes, be about making disciples. That's important and good, but don't collect disciples in your church. Send them out, shoot them out, be a part of building the greater church. Continue to do that. Fight the urge that all churches have to fight, and that is a tendency to bend inwards. To self-provide, to self-protect with your people. Be the church that realizes you exist for the sake of the people who are not yet here in your church. You'll have to fight that. Continue to bend outwards, not inwards. All right, let me try to wrap a bow up on this. I have no idea how long I've gone. You're welcome. This is welcome to North Adams. I've, I tried to flesh that out a little bit through churches birthing churches, but the reality is in order for churches to plant churches, disciples have to be about making disciples. It has to be brought down to a smaller into individual people. So again, if we just continue this thread through the psalm that we've been trying to weave, certainly God can build his kingdom by giving faith to people and to whoever he wants, just like he could speak a word and have a temple built or speak words into dust and create mankind. But God chooses to work through his people to accomplish his plan, and that includes the process of people coming to faith in him. So let me ask you, if you're in this room and you believe and follow Christ, who among us in that category does not have spiritual parents? Do you not have people who opened their mouth and taught you about Jesus, shared their faith with you in a way that was part of your expressing faith in Christ? I, don't, I honestly don't know anybody who doesn't have that as part of their testimony. Where other people, in some way, some more than others for sure, but in some way, every single Christian has a spiritual parent that helped them come to faith or helped them mature in Christ. And so for Solomon, when he's building God's house in his time, that meant all sorts of weird things like brick making, brick baking, brick forming, spreading mortar, making curtains, all of that stuff. For us in our time, where the materials are now people, the work, and catch this, Solomon didn't build the temple himself, nor was the temple built by a thousand Solomons. 
all sorts of people doing different roles, different things, had a part in building the temple. And so for us, where the, where the materials are now people, right, the work is to make spiritual children, to build into the church, to share your faith, to have a meal with your neighbor, to see your workplace as a mission field, not just a paycheck provider. It means joining non-Christian non book clubs or scotch clubs, if you're into that kind of thing. Or sharing hobbies with folks outside of the church. Not just to befriend them and live life, but to disciple them. And I, I understand there's a, there's a balance here. I'm not, I'm not saying make projects out of people. Please don't hear that. But I am saying live intentionally with those in your house, on your street, in your workplaces, in your hobbies. And do the work of making disciples and building God's house. Whatever your role is in that process, however you're going to choose to get after that, it will breathe meaning and purpose into your life, into your hobbies, into your work, whatever it might be. God works through his people to accomplish his plans of building a place for he and his people to dwell. So my encouragement for you is to look at this psalm and not just think physical children, but be fruitful and multiply, spiritual children. For every follower of Christ in this room, you're going to walk out the door of this room today as a missionary for him. That is the reality of it. Keep building his house. Troy, keep being a church that sends people out every single week into offices, into workplaces, into classrooms, into neighborhoods, into community groups, all of it. Keep sending people out with intentionality of reproducing your faith in other people. That purpose can give your work whatever it is, meaning. It can give your home wherever it is, meaning. It can give your relationships, whoever they are with, meaning. Join him in that work. And I think what you'll find is what Solomon then writes in Ecclesiastes, a ton of words around the fruitlessness of life, but there's some gems in there about real purpose. Like Ecclesiastes 3.14 where Solomon says, I have discovered that whatever God does endures forever. Get on board with that because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. He's actively watching over and guarding and protecting his church. Join him in that work. We're going to shift to a time of communion. Hillbillies, if you want to head back up, that's what I call them, hillbillies which totally works in a Hilltown context. Um, normally, Sunday in and Sunday out, we're two families that take communion apart from each other. Today is a different. We have two churches that have come together, and we're going to share in communion together, not separately. This, is, this isn't just... This isn't just reserved for those who only call Terranova Church Troy home. 
this time of communion is a time where it's open to anybody who professes faith and follows Christ, is part of the, the body of Christ. And so we're going to enter in time into worship. And so if you've done that, if, you, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then we welcome you to come up and celebrate with us. If not, if you've never responded to Jesus with personal, personal faith and trust, don't feel any pressure to join in on this. That's okay. But also feel an invitation to talk with us. Talk with me, talk with whoever you might be here with, or, and, and figure out more about what it means to love and follow Jesus Christ. So the aisle... It's a little back, it's opposite. Okay, so over here on this side, you have the prepackaged elements of, of matzah representing the broken body of Christ and the juice representing the blood of Christ shed for you. And on this side is the elements that are not prepackaged. So you can choose whichever one you may like to choose as you come forward. Let me pray and we'll keep worshiping. Father, thank you that you are a sovereign God over every single aspect of our lives. And that in you, we are actually one church, one family. Thank you for giving us the joy of knowing that and feeling that and living that out this morning. Father, even as we enter a time of communion, I'm reminded of a number, another psalm from, that tells us to taste and to see that the Lord is good. And so, Father, I pray as we enter this time of communion, as we, as we hold pieces of matzah that we don't just see a cracker but that we see the reality of our great God who allowed his body to be broken on our behalf and Father as we taste the sweetness of grapes may it not just be about taste buds and flavor but may it remind us of the sweetness and the goodness of our Savior pouring out his blood on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for your greatness over us and your goodness to us. It's in the name of Christ that we pray.